Welcome to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. Witness Lee, a servant of the Lord for over seven decades on five continents, culminated his ministry with a 21-year, book-by-book exposition of the entire Bible, which he called a life study. This life study is the basis of our program today, which includes short portions of the spoken messages given by Witness Lee. Now, let's join today's life study. Did you know that the book of Psalms actually contains 150 different psalms in all? So many poetic and prophetic utterances. Of course, as we have seen, some of these psalms have a very high and profound content, expressing the divine thought and revealing Christ in brilliant detail. Others are not so high. In fact, some are very low in the thought that they convey. Bit by bit, as we read and study this book, we can learn to cultivate a taste for the high peaks contained in the Psalms. Perhaps the highest peak of all in the divine revelation of Christ in the book of Psalms is found in Psalm 68. This oft-quoted psalm actually begins with a quotation of its own. David, the psalmist, quotes Moses from Numbers chapter 10 as he sets out with the completed tabernacle to lead the children of Israel away from Sinai and ultimately into the good land of Canaan with the ultimate destination being Zion in the midst of Jerusalem. And the cloud of Jehovah was over them by day when they set out from the camp, Moses writes in Numbers 10. And when the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Jehovah, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Bill, we have the uh, privilege of touching this very, very high psalm, as Witness Lee says in his life study, perhaps the highest in all of the 150. What do you say? That's quite a statement. Usually we would think, well, it progresses from chapter 1, then we reach 150, and we said, oh, we're at the peak, we're at the highest. Yeah. But it's like <laughs> in the middle of the book, it's the highest in Psalm 68. Bill, what is it about this psalm that puts it in that category? In some ways, you know, there's a quotation from the verse we just read in uh, Numbers is uh, Psalm 68.1, and you hear that one quoted a lot. I know it's even sung frequently in many congregations. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. But in total, what would you say in a kind of a summary way there is about this psalm that would put it in such a category of perhaps being the highest? Well, of course, in those first 18 verses of Psalm 68, you have a lot revealed there. Eventually, in verse 18, you talks about this matter of ascension. So whenever we touch the matter of the Lord's ascension, we are really going to the high peak of his attainments, obtainments. If you look at the Lord's work and person all the way through this psalm, you can see incarnation, you can see his human living, you can see his death, his resurrection. Eventually, in his move on the earth, he attains to the highest point, which is his ascension, and even to bring us there. So when we get into this psalm, Chris, it's really quite high and quite deep. You said something I want to bring out here as we um, get ready to begin. This psalm is all about God's move on the earth Now, uh, what do we mean when we say that? I think it'll begin to get clarified as we join Witness Lee, but let's talk for a minute about this idea. In a sense, everything in the Old Testament was preparatory to God's real move, which began when Christ was incarnated. Uh, How would you give our listeners a kind of a quick understanding of God's move? In this psalm, the background is Moses there at Sinai, 
when the tabernacle is completed, the ark is there, and they're ready to set out with the children of Israel to go through the wilderness, eventually go into the good land and build the temple eventually. But this is just a type, Chris. The real thing is the Lord Jesus Christ as God's tabernacle, and eventually in time God moved out of eternity and into time. And that transpired when the Lord was incarnated as a man. So with the Lord's incarnation, you have the beginning of God's move in Christ on this earth in reality, and to also eventually include us, his redeemed and chosen believers, that we might be built into his tabernacle to be his church, the body of Christ. So this Psalm 68, plus, you know, the whole of Exodus and those books in uh, the beginning of the Old Testament, depicting God moving on the earth in a literal way with his uh, people Israel, with this physical entity called the tabernacle, all of that is a type, it's a shadow, uh, foreshadowing, predicting, and in many ways illustrating the real move of God, which was to begin, as you said, the moment Christ was incarnated. Right, this is true. We have to see God's move on the earth. This is something that's not usually seen by many believers because we think, you know, God is just doing a lot of things and then eventually came to the earth to redeem us. But we have to see God has a move on this earth, and it's typified in the Old Testament ark with the tabernacle in that move from Sinai all the way to Mount Zion. Then the reality comes when God himself actually is incarnated as a man, and then he moves out of eternity into time. He moves in his divinity into humanity, and he wants to move on this earth to gain his people a real dwelling place with himself uh, on the earth. Well, with that kind of background, I think it'll make it uh, much easier for our listeners to really understand uh, the intrinsic value and significance of such a psalm as this one, 68. All right, here's Witness Lee, and then we'll come back, Bill. We have come to a psalm. You should consider this is the top psalm of the 150 psalms, the highest. But also you have to realize this is the psalm that is most difficult for readers to understand. It's hard. In the first verse, it says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. No doubt, this is exactly a quotation from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. And that was Moses' prayer after Moses brought children of Israel to Sinai. During their stay, God decreed his law to them through Moses. But that was not the main thing. At uh, Mount Sinai, not only the law was decreed, but God showed Moses the tabernacle, the ark, the lampstand, the show table, the incense altar, and the brass altar. On the one hand, God charged Moses to decree the law to Israel. On the other hand, God charged Moses to build all the things. The law was decreed with a purpose to subdue Israel. So God decreed the law. While the law was being given, On the mountain, the children of Israel committed sin to break every one of the Ten Commandments. So what? 
That means God gave the law to expose Israel, to convince Israel, to condemn Israel, eventually to subdue Israel. You have to realize you are nothing, you can do nothing. You just cannot do a bit to please me, God says. But that was not God's main purpose. God's main purpose was to build up a tabernacle in which God could dwell and through which the children of Israel could contact God and even could go in to stay with God, to dwell with God, how good it is. Bill, I love this topic. I remember when we had the life study of Exodus, what a tremendous realization, even revelation this presents. Two main things happen on Sinai, but we typically only think of the one. The law, the Ten Commandments, those stone tablets, uh, that was, in most of our consideration, the main thing. But in reality, related to his move, that was the secondary thing, wasn't it? What was the main thing? I had the same thought, Chris, that you had in my background and probably yours and most believers. All we knew was the Ten Commandments. We studied it. We memorized it. We got into Exodus 19, and we were just like the the Israelites. All that the Lord has said, we will do. (laughs) Okay, give us more law, Lord, and we'll try to carry it out. And then the second time they said, all that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do and obey. So we added, we had, we raised the bar on ourselves to try to obey something we could never obey. So, like you say, we focus just on the law. We don't realize that the main thing, the foremost thing God was doing there was he wanted to build a tabernacle that he himself could dwell with his people. The law is secondary, it's not the primary thing. And we major on the minor, and we minor on the major. And yeah. But God's intention is to have a dwelling place, a tabernacle, where God wants to dwell with man. Man can dwell with God. Man can contact God. Man can be one with God. God and man can be built together into one. This is what is deeply on God's heart today, not merely for us to try to keep something that we could never keep. God would never have as his main goal for us to keep the law. He knows we could never keep the law. So the main goal there is to unveil and to build the tabernacle so that God and man could be one. Let's come back and look at that now in light of what we were talking about a moment ago, that is God's move. Surely we can see just by reading Exodus and books like Numbers and the other books of the Pentateuch, that it was when the tabernacle was erected, when it was completed, when the utensils, when all the articles, all these items, the showbread table, the lampstand, the ark, etc., and the labor, when they were completed and the tabernacle was completed, then God could move with his people towards his ultimate goal, which in type, of course, was the good land. It's not when he gave the law that they were ready to move. So his move is wrapped up with the tabernacle, isn't it? Right. Whenever we talk about the tabernacle and the dwelling place, we're touching God's move on the earth. God has a move on the earth, and he wants to move with man on the earth to carry out his eternal purpose in the New Testament. And that's all typified there in the Old Testament. All right. Now, this is, I think, marvelously underscored in this coming portion. Let's look at John 1.14. We've already talked about it a little bit, but for those who may not remember the verse, and the Word became flesh. This is the New Testament now, Gospel of John, talking about the Lord Jesus. And the Word became flesh and 
tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and reality. Here's Witness Lee for this uh, very crucial portion. The tabernacle built up and erected at Mount Sinai was a type. When the real tabernacle was raised up, John 1.14 says, The word who was God became fresh and tabernacled among us. That was the real tabernacle. Before that time, there was no real tabernacle, just a shadow, a type. The real tabernacle is the incarnated God. And his name is Jesus Christ. He became the real tabernacle. So the real tabernacle for God to dwell in on the earth and for God's people to go in, to contact God, to stay with God, never was on this earth before Christ's incarnation. So the writer of John says, the word became flesh and tabernacle among us, full of what? Full of commandments. Full of requirements. Full of what? Full of grace and reality. I don't know whether the writer of that gospel, John, when he came to this point, he jumped or not. (laughs) If I were there, I would jump. Hallelujah! (laughs) He's the real tabernacle. The real tabernacle was not built by Moses. That was a type. A shadow. Nothing happened until the day of incarnation. Boy, this should cause all of us to jump and shout, shouldn't it, Bill? The real tabernacle is among us, the one that is full of grace and reality, not full of commandments, ordinances, requirements. You know, it doesn't say that the word became the law to us, does it? It says the word tabernacled among us. Right. Of course, most translations say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right. So if you say, well, the word dwelt among us, you don't have that rich meaning. The Greek word is the word for tabernacle. And John, being a Jew, when he wrote the book of John, he had that background, and he knew exactly what a tabernacle was because he had a Jewish background. So his sense there is very, very rich, showing that the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it's just a shadow, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ as God's real tabernacle, where this man, the Lord Jesus, was full of grace and full of reality, that we could enjoy him and we could be full of reality to realize all of his riches. Bill, it seems uh, that the tabernacle occupies such a preeminent, such a high place in God's heart because the tabernacle represents the place where God and man meet, where man can know God, where man can come even into God and can dwell with God and mm-hmm. God dwell with man. So there's a lot here, isn't there, in, in, a, in, a, in an experiential uh, light or vein? Right. We have to see that, that God wants a dwelling place on this earth. Not in the heavens. He wants to dwell on the earth. So God became a man to dwell on the earth as a tabernacle. And this tabernacle is enterable. That means we can get into God and God can get into us and we can mingle together as one, in a sense, corporate person. But in order for us to get into God, 
there has to be a you know altar there because we're sinful. How can we sinful people enter into God unless there is an altar there where we can offer the sacrifices and the offerings to enable us to enter into God, to be one with God, and for God to be one with us? So you need all the offerings, you need the sacrifices, you need all the furniture. Eventually, we become one with God on the earth to be his dwelling place. We realize that all of those things are types of uh, different aspects, really, of Christ. So Mm -hmm. Christ is not only the tabernacle, he's the offerings, and he's the labor, and the altar on the way in that, uh, through his redemption, that allows us to come all the way into God's presence. Right. Bill, really, uh, we we see with this... uh, type, this shadow in the Old Testament, that God's move began there with the completion of the tabernacle at Sinai in in the wilderness and progressed for many years. Ultimately, it had a destination, and that was this ascended place in the good land called Mount Zion, the high point of Jerusalem where the temple was ultimately erected. And God's journey on the earth, the fulfillment, the reality of his move begins with the incarnation of Christ, and as you alluded to in our opening comments, has a destination as well, doesn't it? His ascension. Mm-hmm. To reach the highest peak. Zion in the Old Testament, and of course, the Zion in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 14, the overcoming believers, all of a sudden, John says, I looked and lo, on Mount Zion, there's 144,000 overcomers. So the Mount Zion there is what God is after today, his overcoming believers. Verse 18 in Psalm 68 says, You have ascended on high. You have led captive those taken captive. You have received gifts among men, even the rebellious ones also, that Jehovah God may dwell among them. How tremendous. Here's one to for our final portion. Verse 1 says, O God, rise up to move. And is he moved? Moved through what? Through the tabernacle. Without the tabernacle, he couldn't move. That means through Christ. Without Christ, God cannot move on this earth. Eventually, the triune God in Christ did move. And this move ended where? The third heaven. In Christ's ascension. Sinai is the place that the law was decreed. And Zion is the place where this traveling triune God with his people arrived. So this was a type. And this type, different triune God, moved on this earth in Christ from the time the law was decreed. In other words, from the time of incarnation. So could you see two journeys? One is a journey in typology, and the other is a journey in reality. And the journey in typology was taken by God in a type of the tabernacle. But the actual journey was a real move. And this earth, God took in Christ the real tabernacle with the real ark. Firstly, you have to understand this. Then you can understand Psalm 68. This psalm is written about a type of God's journey on this earth in typology, predicting effect to come, a type 
foreshadowing effect. There was such a journey on this earth from Sinai journeying through the wilderness to arrive at Zion. There was such a journey, but that was a type. Starting from incarnation of Christ and ending at Christ's ascension in the heavenly Zion. Well, you listen to something like that and you just think, boy, what do I have to say to add anything? I mean, what can we say? I Just as feeble as it may seem, I do have a comment at least to uh, offer you. It seems in the, this move in reality, according to verse 18 and then according to uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, where he somewhat quotes that verse mm-hmm. about uh, in Christ and his ascension led this train of vanquished foes. Uh, so it seems in his move in reality... He picked up something along the way, didn't he? Maybe we can talk about that for a minute. Yeah, right, Chris. When Paul, again, is a master builder there in in Ephesians 4, writing to the Ephesians, all of a sudden he talks about this move uh, in ascension, you know, referring, of course, to Psalm 68 and also probably Numbers 1035, concerning God's move on the earth and incarnation, right? And then, of course, in his human living, and then at the end of his uh, three-and-a-half-year ministry, he's crucified, he's resurrected, and then 40 days later, he ascends. But what we don't see, unless we read Paul, is that when the Lord uh, defeated the enemy on the cross, we were held captive by him. So we needed to be released from captivity. So the one translation says he led captive a train of vanquished foes. That means all of us were vanquished by him. We were captured by Satan. Then the Lord, through his death and resurrection, recaptured us, in a sense, from Satan. And then when the Lord ascended, he brought us with him and brought us all the way to Mount Zion in the third heavens, where we know the triune God dwells. And Christ gave us as gifts to the Father. And then the Father gave us back to the Son so that the Son could give us to the church for the building up of God's dwelling place on the earth. Of course, we know the triune God had a long journey, but I don't think we realize we had a journey. We journeyed all the way to the third heavens. And yeah, the way that's worded there, and you're right, it is. Uh, it varies a lot from translation to translation because the wording is not so typical. He leads the captives into another kind of captivity. In other right. words, we who were, as if I understood you correctly, we who had been taken captive illegally right. by God's enemy, Satan, and held there in bondage, of course, were released uh, by his death and resurrection. But at the same time, these released captives became his captives, mm-hmm. right? And now we are part of his triumphant procession right. in his ascension all the way to the throne in the third heavens, as you said, so that we could be presented to the Father in our redeemed condition. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to enjoy all of those processes. And then as we enjoy those processes, of course, Paul gets into the matter that we're constituted as gifts to the body of Christ by enjoying his death, his resurrection, ascension, we become one with him, and uh, we become constituted as the gifts to form his organic body, which is God's dwelling place, which is the reality of the tabernacle. Right. Bill, I just would love to put my hands on the clock and pull them back a bit so that we had more time to get into this, but we just, I guess, have to uh, encourage and recommend uh, heartily to our listeners that you contact us to receive the printed Life Study Messages. These are just tremendous portions, and uh, 
what a treasure we've had today to uh, be able to handle a little bit. And as always, I'd like to thank you, Bill. If you'd like to contact us to get the printed Life Study, please call us toll-free, 1-888-LIFE-STUDY, 888-543-3788. And join us again tomorrow as we continue this Life Study from the Book of Psalms. For Bill Lawson today, I'm Chris Wilde. Thank you very much for listening. In Philippians 1.20, the Apostle Paul said, In nothing I will be put to shame, but with all boldness, as always, even now, Christ will be magnified in my body. How can Christ be magnified? How can he be made greater than he already is? Although he is great and worthy of all praise and honor, he still needs to be magnified in our experience of him. He needs to be enlarged in our practical daily living, and according to Paul's word in Philippians 1.19, such a practical experience is our salvation. In a series of messages given in 1978, Witness Lee conducted a detailed study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, revealing its emphasis on the experience of Christ. These messages have been published in the book, The Experience of Christ, which is available at Christian bookstores everywhere, or You can order a copy from Living Stream Ministry by calling 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 1-888-543-3788.